So I want to explain this a little bit too, because I think that not everybody understands this. According to USPAP, which is the governing body for the appraiser's activity, right? They cannot just unilaterally apply a mathematical equation to come up with value every single time. It has to be based off of their experience and kind of their gut feel. Mm -hmm. So there is no singular mathematical equivalent. Now, for an income-producing property that's not under-occupied, the ultimate valuation comes from the income approach to value, like Saeed is suggesting, and they definitely do a cap rate analysis. We as an institution require three approaches uh, to value, Mm -hmm. and I'll explain why there's three. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Higher Standard Podcast, where we give you ultra-premium, unfiltered truth when it comes to building your wealth and curating the lifestyle of your dreams. No games, no drama, and no shenanigans. I am your host, Chris Nahibi, and I'm here to help you distill the immense amount of information and disinformation out there on the interwebs and give you the opportunity to choose a higher standard for yourself. There are no gurus here, and no one gives a damn about how wealthy you look. I'm an attorney and a banker, amongst other things. Does that mean you should listen to me? Hell no. This is just full disclosure that while we talk about money, wealth, law, investing, and a lot of related topics, you should always speak to your own advisors for an opinion tailored to your unique investment perspective. I am obligated to tell you that nothing contained in this show is in fact legal or investment advice and is being provided solely for entertainment purposes. So sit back, Relax your mind and get ready for a different kind of podcast where we elevate your baseline in crispy, high-resolution audio. This isn't a different standard. It's the higher standard. Welcome back, everyone. This is, once again, the higher standard, and I am the Jeff Goldblum of podcasting, a.k.a. the Sasha Baron Cohen of real estate, the giggly-looking motherfucker next to me. (laughs) Shit never gets old, man. (laughs) <laughs> the very wide of podcasting. Mr. Uchi Wally Wally. Mr. Uchi Bang Bang. One and only Saeed Omar. Hello, everybody. With allegedly a sultry voice that has yet to be proven. Yeah, come on. So, this is a relatively recent episode. By the time you hear this, it'll be airing on Friday. We're recording it actually just the weekend before. So, mm-hmm. uncharacteristically uh, close to release for us, which means you get some freshies. 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 Yeah. Things we get to talk about. And there's some things that I've been... Uh, kind of taking a look at in the last couple of days, particularly today, that I thought were somewhat noteworthy for the podcast. Okay. First and foremost, I saw an article which I had to dive into from The Real Deal. Talked about uh, Keller Williams aims to train agents as wealth advisors. Good in theory. Good in theory. And I got into the article. The article was actually a little interesting. So it's not necessarily as bad as it makes it sound. Mm-hmm. Like I think that agents should have some kind of economic understanding. They should have a required econ- you know, economics course. Right. But they don't. They don't, no. So this is more like they want their agents to give real estate investment advice. So it's specifically wealth advisors for real estate only. Okay. According to the article anyway. But I have a huge problem with this. Like, you're a salesperson. Yeah. Most wealth advisors are in a salesperson-like role while they're not the person who actually is like the chief investment officer, the person who makes the investments or the trades and all that stuff. Right. They're the person out there trying to get the clients and thus, you know, sell the relationship. Right. But- I think this is kind of too close to home, man. Yeah. Like, where, where do you see that there could be you know, faults in this? Well, the attorney in me sees a shit ton of legal liability, right? Like you, yeah. have, you have your salespeople out there who you're now training as, quote, wealth advisors as it relates to real estate. Yeah, who get a, paid a commission on selling you this home. And I've, I've always not liked the idea of wealth advisory firms that are solely into like one thing. Like you should have a holistic approach. Mm-hmm. Your wealth advisor is going to keep you largely in stock. 
Right. Or they might keep you in something like a real estate investment trust, which has some real estate components that you can take advantage of. Yeah. It's very rare you find a firm that's going to look at your whole financial picture and balance you out. And here you're going to have people who are going to drive you largely into real estate and then say they're going to grow your net worth. That's a lot of liability for your agents to be out there promising people and working with people to do. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see like how they do pitch it. Well, at the very least, I think it's good for agents to have some kind of economic understanding of what they're selling people. Yeah. And the, the article was, uh, it was kind of an interesting pitch. So they basically said that because people's homes are typically their largest, quote, investment, even though we've always said on the show, you know, your home shouldn't be an investment, you should buy for utility. But it is true. That's where most people's net worth is centered. Right. But that's what they want people to be trained on is how to invest. But to me, that's the same thing they're already doing. Yeah. So all they're really doing is creating liability for themselves. Yeah, exactly. So I don't, I don't know there's a whole lot of benefits to that. But I got into the article and it was interesting. Oh, I should note. So one of the things we've been testing for a while uh, for the podcast is that we have, uh, if you subscribe to our email list for The Higher Standard, mm-hmm. you can go to thehigherstandardpodcast.com or you can go to any of our, our, our links and it's all there. You can subscribe to our mailing list. One of the things we're going to start doing is all these articles, we're going to send out the links. So the day of the podcast comes out, if you're a subscribed listener, you'll get the show notes, you'll get all the links emailed right. directly to you so you have access to all these articles. So you can read into them more if you want to. Right. I like that because um, that's the problem that I have with some of the podcasts I listen to. I mean, I trust them, the reliable sources, but I would like to also do the deep dive reading myself wow the guy with the sultry voice doesn't trust people no, I, I do i'm saying i do trust people but i enjoy it i want to uh-huh. read into it more myself yeah, yeah you enjoy it. Yeah. now it's not about <laughs> trusting people it's about <laughs> wanting to enjoy it that's what I, <laughs> that was a very very interesting spin there sultry <laughs> no, that's what i said to begin with you uh-huh. misheard yeah clean out the earwax so we talked in the last episode a little bit about how inflation is impacting people particularly as it relates to grocery shopping and some of the things that we heard mm-hmm. so according to cnbc two in five americans say inflation will change their holiday shopping habits this year it should be five and five yeah right <laughs> well i mean we were talking in the last episode that you know this interesting holiday season should be a reflective be very of telling spending. yeah right and, the, and it'll really showcase the Consumer sentiment report, right? Right. And here we are before we really got into the holiday season. You know, October is technically like the late of this week, right? Yeah. We're already two two and five. You're almost at half yeah. going like, shit, this is going to change what I spend this year. Yeah. So that, that's, I think that to me is pretty telling. I mean, it's a, it's a poll. So, I mean, again, you can read into that for what, you know, what you want it to be, but it, mm-hmm. it's it's not necessarily. I mean, with inflation right. being as high as it is, I, I don't see how it's not higher. I mean, I would expect it to at least be three and five, you know? Because I think people will cut back on things like vacations. Uh, they'll cut back on like, you know, meals and that eating out and stuff like that before they'll cut back on true holiday spending. Really? Because we've bought into this culture in American society where you, you just have to do these things and it's expected. And keep in mind, your kids go to school and, you know, they see this. They don't want to, you don't want your kids to go to school and mom and daddy couldn't do something, you know? Right. So they're going to sacrifice other places they can first. Absolutely. But for two and five already saying it, it's going to change their holiday spending habits, that's, that's to me is impactful already because you yeah. know it's going to change a lot more for other people too. Yeah. So I, I think it's really just trying to see the poll really is coming down to saying like we are feeling inflation. Yeah, exactly. So to that end, I was doing some scrolling today at the house, uh, getting ready for some travel tomorrow, actually tomorrow morning early. And I came across, uh, and I'm not going to mention his name, but I came across a mortgage loan guy's social media profile mm-hmm. and he was talking about inflation and the headline grabbed me basically he was suggesting that inflation is not a big deal why are people worrying yeah and i was like okay that's a little bit out of touch a little out of touch or maybe he's trying to sell something right yep exactly so one of the things that that i, I like to do whenever i see this regardless of how many people's follower count and what it looks like 
is I like to listen to what they have to say. And this is a very well manicured, and I'm going to give this guy credit. His editing in his presentation, his lighting, all this. I mean, it's a great looking video. Mm-hmm. And I don't think he's trying to be malicious, but I do think that he's wrong. But yep. I'm going to play this, and then I'm going to read my response. Okay. Ready? Yep. All right. Here we go. Federal Reserve recently raised the federal funds rate. What does it mean? Why are they doing it? But more importantly, how is it going to impact mortgage interest rates? The primary job of the Federal Reserve is to keep the economy in check. They want steady growth, not too hot, not too cold. It was perfect. One way they do this is by raising or lowering the federal funds rate. The federal funds rate is the rate at which banks actually exchange money to each other overnight. It affects things like auto loans, credit cards, and home equity lines of credit, or HELOCs. Contrary to popular belief, it doesn't have a direct impact on 30-year fixed rates. What? Okay, let's dig in. See, inflation is the arch enemy of a 30-year fixed rate, and inflation's been out of control. And recently, readings have actually come in worse than expected. We feel it, we see it at the pump, we see it at the grocery store, and we're seeing it with interest rates. What they did by raising the federal funds rate signals a strong intent to get inflation in check. It's a good thing. That's a good thing. Increasing the federal funds rate will have an immediate impact on credit card interest rates, home equity line of credit interest rates, and auto loan interest rates. This is consumer debt and consumer spending. On the other hand, long-term mortgage interest rates are fueled by the bond market, which is hypersensitive to inflation. Hopefully, by them increasing the federal funds rate, we'll actually start to see mortgage interest rates come down. Thank you, Jesus! <laughs> Feel free to reach out if you'd like to chat further on this topic. Yeah, I would love to reach out to chat yeah. further. <laughs> so I did, and I posted on I posted on his stuff, and and he responded. But this is so. First of all, I want to be very clear. I don't yeah. think he's malicious or or being like uh, some kind of disingenuous in this. I think he legitimately believes what he said. And when he followed up and responded, I think his answer was interesting. But I'm going to tell you what I, I'm going to read you what I wrote. Let's try to first understand what he was saying in the video. So he was, he, saying, he was basically saying that the Fed funds rate does not directly impact mortgage, mortgage rates, rates, which is true. Mm-hmm. Fed funds is the interbank, you know, rate between for the cost of banks to borrow. Right. So how much it costs banks to borrow. But keep in mind, the cost for banks to borrow is going to be passed on to you, the consumer. Exactly. So the bank's cost to borrow plus their cost of operations and their profits built into that is the rate that you typically get. Now, he is correct that the bond market influences mortgage rates, but particularly the 10 year. Right is what impacts mortgage rates, right? right the 10-year treasuries. So when the 10-year treasuries move up, you'll see the 30-year mortgage rates creep out. Now, I, I since literally, I think it was last night we recorded the last episode, yeah. and tonight, so for you listening, Tuesday to Friday by the time you hear this, yeah. mortgage rates have already gone up above, well above 6.27% or something like that, yeah. right? So the mortgage rates are still creeping up now, right? which hasn't happened historically with each 75 basis point Fed increase, but it's starting to happen uh, a little bit more impactfully. And I would say that's probably a lot more normal activity. And that's a good thing. That's because elasticity is coming back into the economy where normally a, an interest rate increase of 75 basis points would move the needle on mortgage rates. It hasn't done that historically because after 14 years of artificial interest rate deflation, we've effectively taken out all this elasticity, all this energy from the economy. It takes three massive pushes like this to really build up that momentum. Right. And we're starting to see that play out. Uh-huh. Now, he's saying that that mortgage rates will effectively come down. And there is nothing on the horizon which suggests that to be true. Nothing. Nothing. Right. Exactly. So I explained why to him in my response to him. Okay. Which was what? Oh, you want to read that now? Yeah. Okay. Well, if you team me up a little better, sir, and have yeah. more prepared. <laughs> yeah. uh, I said, while a good video and edited well, rates will not be coming down in the near term. As a lender, you know that mortgage rates typically track the 10-year. 
As we are still inverted, you can expect that upward pressure on the long end of the curve to continue to hold mortgage rates high until the 10-year is priced above the 2-year, which, if you recall from previous episodes, that is an inversion, a yield curve inversion, mm -hmm. which is a predecessor to almost every recessionary economy in history. Right. With two more Fed meetings this year, both of which are expected to provide additional increases to get closer to the ever-changing Fed target rate, which we know has gone up and up, especially if you listened to the last episode, we will see continued upward pressure. Don't forget housing and employment are lagging indicators. Typically, long-term debt is priced as, as an additional lagging indicator of the markets. The consumer debt you speak of and for those of you who want to recall, it's he's talking about credit card debt, home equity line of credit. Right. These are index plus margin consumer debt. Yeah. Which means you have an index, which is going to move, usually based on the treasuries, mm -hmm. and then whatever margin the bank's profitability is built into it. Those are supposed to move as rates move up yeah, a exactly. lot quicker. Yeah. So for him to cite that shows a bit of a disconnect in, in how the mar markets actually work. Right. So those are always going to move as rates rise right. quickly. That's why they're priced that way. Whereas your 30-year 30, 30 mortgage rates, the new rates that come out, those are based off the markets, then getting new loans. The new loans go into the system. They take 30, 60 days, whatever it might be, to close. Then they post. Then you get the aggregate reporting on that stuff in 30 or 60 or 90 days based on right. the quarter. So for those for those to be reported as moving significantly, it takes it takes time. It's a That's lagging right. indicator. That's right. And we talked about it on the last episode as well that, you know, these, these price hikes get, you know, priced in with the rate hikes well in advance of the actual increase. Exactly. So to finish it off. The consumer debt you speak of is more reactive as it is typically an index plus margin pricing. Expect to end the year north of 6.5%, and we're dangerously close to that already, Yeah. for conforming owner-occupied 30-year product on average. This is at least 25 basis points higher than the current average great content. Mm -hmm. And he was very nice in his response. And basically what he said to me was, and this is where, I mean, I call bullshit, and I want people to understand why I'm highlighting this afterward. He basically said that after recessionary economies, rates typically come down. <laughs> that's not what he said yeah he was trying to do an analytical financial analysis which suggests that rates would be coming down in the near term right exactly and that's not true and if yeah. you're trying to drum up business okay there's a motivation for you to do that mm -hmm. but it's also very it's misleading it's very misleading for, yeah. and then for you to put that comment on your own post i would say comes off somewhat disingenuous now as a guy who creates content i get it not mm -hmm. everything you say whenever you're creating content is great but the the finished video might be very well polished you might push it out and there might be some stuff like we talked about uh the rumors of regal filing bankruptcy yeah and we talked about sin world filing bankruptcy and at the time i didn't realize that sin world was the parent company of regal until afterward yeah yeah, yeah. so my video that went out content production wise kind of referenced them as two different entities when they're in fact the same, the same exactly. and that regal one that we heard was really sin world that was rumored exactly so i get i get all that but what i'll say is with stuff like this this is where you as people who are scrolling through social media as the consumer who are hearing these things, you have to consider the source. A mortgage lender has a very, very close nexus to this. And just like the realtors, my father's a mortgage lender. I've been a mortgage lender. I'm a chief credit officer of a bank. You know, I've been in this space. My brother works as a lender. I, I have no, no problem with people in this space. Exactly. But they're not required to take an economics course. Right. And, but it is, it is very misleading. And, you know, the listeners should know that although that you won't see rates go up when you know the fed actually comes out and says it it's because the tea leaves that were dropped before beforehand everyone realizes that you know the, the fed funds rate is going to go up so that's why it gets priced in beforehand yeah um so 
I did want to transition into a big commercial real estate conversation with you. But before we do that, mm-hmm. I want to talk about one last thing. Uh, Bloomberg Business put out an article today with the title, the, the tagline was, Jerome Powell says the U.S. economy may be entering a, quote, new normal. Yeah, I saw this, yeah. And I looked at it and I thought, oh, this is weird. So I read, I read some kind of the blurbs in, in, in it. And here's, here's some, I, I guess, an idea of color from the conversation. Okay. We continue to deal with an exceptionally unusual set of disruptions, Powell told business, business and community leaders Friday at a Fed Listens event in Washington. Mm-hmm. So the Fed started this Fed Listens event uh, not too long ago. I think it was a couple of years ago, maybe two or three years ago, to kind of get like feedback from the community. Right. And I guess there's some value in this and that people are speaking to the Fed. But when the Fed makes their decisions, it's not because of this. I guess it makes people feel warm and fuzzy, but I don't really know there's any value in the Fed because they're not looking at any of the indicators outside of their normal indicators like PCE, Right. but they still do this anyway. Article goes on to say, as policymakers were committed to using our tools to help see the economy through what has been a uniquely challenging period, mm-hmm. end quote. So I'll say this. I, I think what Powell is not saying directly is because of politics. Okay. I think what his biggest which concern he sh- which is, which he shouldn't be doing, well, he, right? well, because he doesn't want he doesn't want to address politics. But what he does want to do is he wants to let people know that the political landscape, the Democrats, the Republicans that are in house and that are doing their their their, their jobs, are messing with this thing, man. Yeah, you the, you can't expect they're not, him to they're not helping him, right? No, you can't expect him to control inflation when you're printing more money. And people people attack me online occasionally about this kind of thing too, where they're like, hey, like. We're not printing more money. They don't understand. We are printing more money every time we do things like the student debt relief, right? The Inflation Reduction Act, and they don't understand that the power that that our policymakers have mm-hmm. in doing this came from different places that were never intended for what the, what we're getting. Yeah. So I think that I think the Fed Secretary is trying to suggest that what we're doing and what we're going through is a period where. The government is literally working against Fed policy. Yeah, and not really helping him get his job accomplished. But in addition to that, um, at his last presser, he they were talking about that two percent target rate that they're trying to achieve, and they were citing that it's still two to three percent, right? Two to three percent, right? But what the, what he was citing was the goal is to get there by the end of twenty twenty four or twenty twenty beginning of twenty twenty five to put things in perspective. Yeah. They're trying. They're planning that far out. So this is going to feel somewhat normal, maybe this this amount of pressure in in until that time. Well, and, that, and that's, that's what he's alluding to essentially is that he's he's suggesting that it will feel like the new normal because it'll take that long. Yeah, and I, I do think that's where guys like this mortgage lender get it wrong because the near term uh, recessionary economy, even if it were two year recession, mm-hmm. in a best case scenario. Because I believe we started the recession in January 1. If we're going right. to hold this through next year, it, it could, in theory, be a two-year-long recession. I don't know that that's even possible, but it, let's just say that it is. Okay. You're not going to see interest rates go back down. Exactly. Significantly, at least, until there's some release by the Fed. Yeah. So for guys like this guy to say, well, it typically happens. And keep in mind, too, a lot of these things continue to trend up after recessions are declared over. Mm-hmm. Unemployment will trend up. These lacking indicators will continue to report in. Yeah, and because they do that, if you're expecting relief at the time we hit this two to three percent Fed funds target rate, and you know for things to be great and lovely and gumdrops and lollipops, I would tell you that's just not the way it works. Right. They're going to need compelling evidence that these numbers are on the way down and are going to stay down, right, for quite some time. So it's getting 
raising the rates and getting it there. And then the real question is, like we've touched on in the past, how long are they going to hold it for? Oh, shit. You know what? I just remember I have one other thing I want to talk to you about. This oh, is yeah. This is the one you said that you didn't want to tell I didn't me want to give ahead it to of you. time. Right. So this is a freshie for Saeed as much as it is for you, the audience. And I'm going to read you a question. It's a multiple choice question. Okay. It came from the California Real Estate Brokers Exam. Okay. All right. So I, I was not looking for this. Somebody sent it to me who's actually, and you, and you know the person, I'll, I'll take you off the air, mm-hmm. who's actually studying for this exam currently. And this was a legitimate question on the California Real Estate Brokers Exam. Okay. I've taken this exam. I, I don't remember seeing this question, but I love it. Okay. Ready? Demand has no effect on value unless there is also A, B, C, or D. Ready? Okay. Demand you, has no effect. Demand has no effect on value unless there is also. Okay. Okay. Answer A, a need for the thing in demand. Okay. Answer B, an adequate <laughs> I'm, so, I'm so I'm so eager reading to, uh, rainbow inadequate yeah, inadequate supply of the thing in demand. So a a need for the thing in demand. B an adequate supply of the thing in demand. C a scarcity of the thing in demand. Mm-hmm. Or D purchasing power which enables the ability to buy the thing in demand. Purchasing power. That uh, read that one more time. Or so demand has no effect on value unless there is also a a need for the thing in demand, b an adequate supply of the thing in demand, c a scarcity of the thing in demand, or d purchasing power which enables the ability to buy the thing in demand. And I'm not going to force you to answer that. I know yeah. the, the answer is d. D. Right. Why? Because like we've been saying over and over and over again on this Afford- podcast, demand without affordability, affordability is, is not, not demand. demand. Right. If the supply and dem- demand argument were actually fucking true, right. it would be C, a scarcity of the thing in demand, right? Because right. there would be a lack of supply. Exactly. So this is straight from the California Real Estate Brokers exam. And all these real estate agents and brokers who are citing the supply and demand argument are supposed to fucking know better. It's right. literally on the exam. It's on, exactly, yeah. It's literally on that, the exam. That's, that's the one they all get wrong. So for them to tell you, yeah, <laughs> so we know which ones you guys got wrong. Yeah. But for them to tell you for like Dave Ramsey and Keeping Current Matters and all these sites to tell you, oh, supply and demand, supply and demand, they are fundamentally not understanding something they are supposed to understand. Wow. So so wait, you found some one of the listeners sent this to you? Yeah. How cool is that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I was, I geeked out on it, posted it right away and was going to tell you about it. Yeah. But then I was like, you know what? Let's stay for the show. Yeah, that's good, man. All right. I want to get into the meat and potatoes of this episode. We promised on Tuesday. Okay. That we were going to talk about commercial real estate and what it is you do. So if you don't mm-hmm. mind. Right. Um, I'm, I'm the chief credit officer of the bank, but your day-to-day job, can you describe your title and what it is you do? So I am a senior underwriter uh, for the multifamily department, commercial real estate department of the bank. Um, Basically what I do is look over loans, recommend loans to the bank that I think are worthy of, you know, making loans to investing in. All right. So by way of background, all banks have something known as a credit policy. It's the broad overriding document which effectively tells the board and everybody else what we're going to do in its kind of broadest tone. So it'll have a list of prohibited loans, for example, things we wouldn't do like uh, hard money lending or right. you know usurious loans. It's a very broad document. Mm-hmm. Underneath that are policies and procedures. Yes. Right, which tell everybody what we do and how we do things. And then below that are also guidelines. 
Right. So Saeed's job would be to reference all three of those documents, uh, and they go from you know less detailed to more detailed, from the credit policy being broad, the policy and procedure being detailed, and the guidelines are being extremely detailed. Right. He'll review them, all the loans that come in against those things, and make a recommendation whether it fits the the preferred lending types of the bank. Or make adjustments so that it can fit. Mm-hmm. Right. Because Part of what we do as an institution is our culture, at least, has never been outright reject. It's been to find a way to make deals work if we can. Right, exactly. Find a happy medium. So the primary product type that you look at, sir? Is our multifamily. Multifamily. But occasionally yeah, commercial, commercial real estate, real estate too. Uh, yeah. Occasionally commercial real estate as well, but primarily that's our bread and butter. It is our bread and butter and something that I've personally and business-wise have liked my entire life. But yeah. uh, I should point out, none of the things we're going to talk about here are really that much different for pure commercial real estate. If you're thinking retail, industrial, there are some added nuances like uh, SNDA, subordination, non-disturbance in a term and agreements, mm-hmm. stuff like that. But by far and away, the analysis is the same. Mm-hmm. So I want to walk everybody through this because a lot of people have hit me up asking for you know, more about commercial real estate. And I thought the best thing we could give them is with right. someone in your seat inside a bank who they would normally never really get to talk to right experiences on a day-to-day basis when they get a fresh package yeah so when it gets to you Mm -hmm. it's gone through an originator bringing it in and their processor usually at the originating like broker shop or individual shop right or somebody put the package together Mm -hmm. that comes into our processing group which then compares it to our needs list of the items that we need in order to make a credit decision right a complete package so that comes to you, and typically you're getting this with the appraisal, right? I'm getting this with the appraisal. With title? With title, and a full appraisal review from our you know, department, mm-hmm. appraisal review department. And uh, primarily what the first thing that I do that I like to dive into is quickly get to the loan amount. I want to see what I, how, how strict this got sized, you know, um, how aggressive maybe the, the production team was, and see if this is going to be a potential issue or not. So can you explain what that sizing really means? Because most people in the audience, if they're in the single family world, they're not really sizing and structuring deals right. that way. Right. So basically what happens is when the deal's brought over to our production team, the production team will will analyze it, run their numbers. They'll look at how much revenue the, the property is bringing in versus the expenses that they estimate. And sometimes, depending on who it is, they get a little bit more aggressive and they really push that loan amount to get as high as possible. Um, and based on that, they'll issue a loan amount that they think we, they believe we can get to. And for a fresh reminder, the loan amount in commercial real estate is not something you just can arbitrarily choose. You have to back into it mm-hmm. vis-a-vis a debt service coverage ratio. In order to get that, that ratio, that, that figure of, you know, $1.15 to every dollar exactly. in you know, profit to, to expense for every dollar in expense, you have to really know the financial situation of that building. Right. You have to know the income and expense of the each entire of the, property. Each of these buildings are looked at as a business, right? It's, they're not, these deals aren't underwritten the same way a single family house is. That we're not relying on the income made by the person applying for the loan. We're relying on the income that the property generates on its own. So to explain that is that in commercial real estate and traditionally in CNI, middle market, and every market for that matter, you typically have at least two, if not three, sources of repayment. Right. For commercial real estate, your primary source of repayment is going to be the cash flow coming in from the property. Mm-hmm. Does it make enough money to cover the expense, the debt load, including the mortgage payment? Yes. Second is going to be the equity in the property, your loan to value. Mm-hmm. And third is going to be your sponsorship, 
right. whoever's providing you a guarantee or a non-recourse guarantee. Right. So what Saeed's talking about is the first thing he's really looking at is not so much the loan to value. He's looking at the net operating income analysis, which is the analysis of looking at how much money the property's bringing in, what the expenses are, mm -hmm. and getting to that debt service coverage ratio figure, because that will tell you right. what your loan amount is. Basically what happens is we take we take the rents that are, that are provided and we annualize that figure. We hit them for all our expenses, everything from vacancy to property taxes, insurance, utilities, repair and maintenance, and any let's, type Let's of get into that though. So like for most people, let, let's just talk about a hypothetical uh, eight unit building. Okay. Uh, for an eight unit building, you're, you're gonna look at the underlying leases, Mm -hmm. and you're going to figure out how much that property should be making in the next year. Exactly. Right. And you're going to look. So typically speaking, you're going to get um, a three year historical look at the property's operations. Right. And you're going to get the current year to date. Current year to date. Depending exactly. on where we're at in, right. in, in, the, in the month uh, mm -hmm. of the year. So you're going to take those numbers. And what you're really trying to do in this analysis is project what that property is going to look like post close. Right. I mean, if it's if. If there's any kind of consistency over the last three years, it, it makes it fairly easy to be able to predict what it's going to look like the upcoming year. Right. So, so the current practice in place for our institution and for most institutions is you use the lower of actual rent in place mm -hmm. or market rent or market rent. And this is this is always a, a tough spot for um, the you know non-season borrowers to understand well the, i'm i'm collecting x amount of dollars why are you guys not giving me the credit for that call it two thousand dollars per unit per month mm -hmm. times eight times 12 and that's your gross you know potential gross income your right. pgi so units that are marked that are above market what we like to do is mark them down to market level so let's say if they're saying they're collecting two thousand dollars a month for a unit but actual market rent based on what the appraiser said mm -hmm. comes in at eighteen hundred dollars uh, for that unit, I have to discount that that unit two hundred dollars because let's just say that tenant for whatever reason really needed that unit. They were willing to pay two thousand, but what the appraiser is saying is based on the comps that he's looked over and others like properties in the neighborhood. People are generally paying around eighteen hundred dollars. If we were to ever have to take this over, or let's just say that tenant vacates and they have to replace that tenant, odds are. That ten, the next tenant will pay no more than eighteen hundred dollars. Boom, that was that was beautiful. Yeah, I don't like complimenting you, so it was yeah, good. yeah. But so I, I think this is really important for people to understand too. Where this is why the appraisal number one costs more for commercial real estate. Yes, and takes more time. There's a couple different variants of this. If you're going to get into commercial real estate, there's a form seventy one a. It's very similar to uh, the, the the form you would get back for single family appraisals, mm -hmm. it's, it's, but it's just form for multifamily. Exactly. But there's also something you typically get for all commercial real estate. It's a more narrative which I love. appraisal, which, which is a much bigger document. It mm -hmm. is literally a narrative. It's like a little mini report, and it's usually it's pretty significant. It's great. Pages, and, yeah. yeah, and the appraiser takes a nice deep dive into not only the market that the property's in, but the sub-market, you know, the neighborhood that it's in. So you really get a feel of each each asset, right? Mm -hmm. And um, But it's also more expensive and more time consuming. It is. And uh, what, what they do is um, they'll give you a value based on two approaches, primarily either sales comparison approach, what properties like your subject property um, are currently being valued at, um, ones that are recently sold and some that are probably pending or on sale in the market. And the other is the income approach, 
where they back into the value of the property based on how much income it generates via you know cap rates, right? Mm-hmm. And um, that's the that's the one that the appraiser more times than not relies on because people buying this property are relying on it for income purposes. So I want to explain this a little bit too because I think that not everybody understands this. According to USPAP, which is the governing body for the appraiser's activity, right? They cannot just unilaterally pl- apply a mathematical equation to come up with value every single time. It has to be based off of their experience and kind of their gut feel. Mm-hmm. So there is no sing- singular mathematical equivalent. Now, for an income-producing property that's not under-occupied, the ultimate valuation comes from the income approach to value, like Saeed is suggesting, and they definitely do a cap rate analysis. We as an institution require three approaches uh, to value, mm-hmm. and I'll explain why there's three. Both the sales comparison approach, which Saeed noted, both the income and the income approach to value, and we also require an insurable replacement cost new. Yes. So that we as an institution know how much we should charge you or require you to get for insurance recover us as mortgagee additional loss payee. Right. In case there's a, any type of like catastrophic event. In a worst case event of a catastrophic, worst case catastrophic event, yeah, we want to make sure that the bank can be made whole. And if the insurable value mm-hmm. is not enough to cover us, that's a problem. So right. You, you have to think it, whenever you're going into this as an originator, somebody who's bringing this business in or wants to learn the business, the bank or the lender's position will always be a worst case event scenario of default. How do we get made whole? Right. And the the lower the relative risk is, the better your financing rate should be. Right. Right. And once you get to a higher point where you're, you know, you got a great property, it's well collateralized, property mar- property margin collateral, cash flows well, you got strong sponsorship, you might even get to the point where you could re- request something called a non recourse loan. Yes. Well, most lenders uh, don't really do a true non-recourse loan where there's nobody guaranteeing the loan. But effectively, let's say you buy these properties and most all of them are always bought in an LLC name. Mm-hmm. Uh, the LLC will own the property and then an individual will be the managing member or the owners or the members, whatever it might be. This is how the deals are structured. Yeah, right? we'll get we'll get in that later. But if it's a strong enough deal, you may be able to say, I don't want to personally provide a guarantee for this. And in the state of California, most lenders you're only going to provide a guarantee for a non-recourse loan for three things that happen. Fraud, misrepresentation, or deceit. Right. If you do any one of those three things, it's going to trigger full recourse guarantee. You have to stand behind it, if you will. But unless you do those three things, mm-hmm. you, you, even if the property goes back to the bank, you won't be held personally liable. Yeah. Right. Those are known as bad boy carve-outs, and those are a different conversation for a different time. So right. now that you've got the income, yeah. the top line revenue, mm-hmm. now you need to start going through the expenses. Yep. And I would imagine the first expense that you look at is probably vacancy. That's the first one that the first one that we look at is vacancy. And you use the the lower, I'm sorry, the higher of the appraisal actual, mm-hmm. um, or three percent as a minimum, right? Or three to five percent. Three to five percent. I generally don't like to depending depending it, uh, that really depends on the size of the property, right? Right. Um, how and many, where it's located and, and where it's located and all that. But with that, it gets it can get a little tricky, right? Because depending on if you have a borrower that you're familiar with or someone that is savvy in the market, right? Well, let's say there is a vacant, let's just say it's in a, a you know, 10 unit property, right? Mm-hmm. And there's uh, one vacant unit. Well, that's, that's a 10% vacancy, right? So we wouldn't, we wouldn't hit them for a 10% vacancy. We would still mark it down because the odds are if they're a, if they're a seasoned um, real estate investor and they have a good management team under the belt, some, a lot of these people own their own property management companies. 
Right. And a, and a lot of times you'll also get somebody saying that they're buying a property. Yes. That they don't want the outgoing owner to put a tenant into their property. Yes. So they want them to quote keep it vacant. Because and which is which is very, very likely and happens all the time. I mean, if I'm buying a property, I want to put my own tenant in, in place. Or even more more importantly, maybe that was a legacy tenant that was in there before when I'm buying it. I like to make some renovations to that unit and upgrade that upgrade the unit. So it'll be offline for a little bit, but at that point we'll look into the, you know, their liquidity position, how long sponsorship, sponsorship, right. Right. To and see, experience and experience to see, you know, how strong, how financially strong are they? Can they cover the, that unit being down for a couple months while they renovate it and then lease it back out? And then we, at that point we would still rely on the appraisals vacancy marker. There are a couple different mechanisms banks can deploy to really try to get uh, a comfort level. Some will do things like a holdback. They'll hold back some of your cash out proceeds, for example, uh, in, a, in a separate non-interest bearing account or interest bearing account, depending on how they set it up. And once you get it rented and stabilized for call it three or six months, they'll, they'll give the funds back to you. There's several different things they can do that'll, that'll cover any, any issues like that. And that's more of a complicated, more technical position. But for, for everybody who wants to see what the actual expenses look like that a bank will look like, you need to search no farther than your own tax returns if you own an investment property. Yeah. Uh, your Schedule C, is it? Uh, no, E. Schedule E. Schedule E. Schedule been, e that's, page, that's how long it's been. Page it's two. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Schedule <laughs> E. Page two. Um, we'll, we'll actually explain the details. And that's the exact same line item look that every bank typically looks at whenever they're adding your expenses together. Yep. They're going to look at your apparent maintenance. They're going to look at... So it's really important that... With the you, exception of that de- depreciation cost. Yeah. Depreciation and amortization, you, you, don't, you, don't, you, don't, you don't get <laughs> yeah. the benefit of adding back in. And what I'll tell you is this is where I think so many people who go into the real estate business get it wrong. Mm-hmm. If you're not showing income because you're writing everything off, right, it's going to be really hard to give you credit. Yes, whenever we go to underwrite your loan request, exactly. So if you're underreporting your income, or you're taking more than the standard depreciation amortization, and mm-hmm. you're like, you know, falsely bumping up things like R and M because you don't want to pay taxes, right? Uh, you're gonna have a problem getting financing when it comes time yeah. to refinance that property because those historical operating statements do need to match and tie into uh, your tax returns. We do take a look at those things, and that's where I think a lot of people find themselves in in a bit of hot water. And let's not mince words here. Uh, banks are typically insured by the FDIC, which is the Federal Deposit Insurance Company, right? And if you're committing tax fraud, yeah. it's incumbent upon us to say something to someone at yeah, some point, right? Yeah, exactly. Especially if we get questioned on it. So don't do that. Yeah, don't do that. But then, so after that, after we look at that vacancy factor, next thing we'll go into is, you know, your tax, the tax expense is very easy to calculate. You'd be able to look into, you know, tax code and depending on where you are, um, if it's listed in California, you just take the purchase price times by tax rate and add it back in special assessments. In California, we have Prop 13, which basically means that we're not going to have a significant rise in, in taxable value mm-hmm. unless there's certain things that happen, one of which is a transfer of title to a bona fide purchaser. Right. Um, but however, if it, let's say it's a property that you've owned for quite some time and mm-hmm. this is a, a, a cash out refi where you're trying to cash out on some, on some, some of your equity to, you know, repurpose that into another, you know, 1031 exchange it into a, another building, um, what we would do is look at apply the loan amount to the tax rate of special assessments. And the reason why we do that is if we would ever have to take back the property, that's what it would cost us, right? In a worst case event scenario, in a worst this case is what the bank scenario. would have to pay if it took it in. Yeah, right. exactly. Um, after that, it's your uh, insurance premium, um, which we would, I would we always ask for confirmation from them just to make sure that we get that right because you don't want that adjusting on you on the 11th hour. And it does happen a lot where 
especially in California where there's been so many wildfires in Florida where there's been a lot of wind and weather you know related issues and especially after the COVID-19 pandemic man yeah there's been insurance costs across the country have really gotten difficult mm-hmm. for borrowers for lenders for everybody I mean yeah. the insurance costs in California in some markets is almost unattainable they're, they're stuck with California fair plan and some other stuff it's, it's pretty we're seeing pretty a difficult. lot of we're seeing a lot of deductibles now creeping up from that originally we do ten thousand we're seeing a lot more twenty five thousand dollar deductibles mm-hmm. yeah and so our in-house limit um we have an in-house limit and so anything that goes goes over that it's going to require an exception in order to to make that exception I think people think that it's oh I'm just going to request it. No. We have to look at your your financial position and make the the judgment call. Can this person afford that right. higher deductible? Are you, are you barely meeting our six month liquidity requirement for PITI, or is liquidity not an you know not an issue for the for the sponsorship? And I should point out if you're ever getting a loan for a multifamily or commercial real estate property, you should expect there to be two basic barometers of your financial sponsorship, whether you're providing a recourse guarantee or not. It's, is your net worth equal to or greater than the loan amount? Has to be, right. And do you have six months of PITI, principal interest taxes and insurance, in liquid reserve? Right. And that's after, after post-close, because if we're talking about a purchase, you got to, mm-hmm. we're deducting your down payment. So one of the things that you'll see a lot of people talk about, whether it's on social media or it's on the internet, is that, oh, getting a commercial loan is easier yeah. than, than getting a single family residence loan. And I would say... In some ways, yes, and in some ways, absolutely fucking not. No, no, it's easy. It's easy for those that know what they're doing. Yeah, yeah you yeah. know what you're doing. It's it's certainly a different, different transaction. But you're going to need more money to put down. Right. Bottom line. Exactly. And for people who tell you, well, you can buy all these properties and put three percent down, that doesn't happen in the commercial real estate world. Mm-hmm. Doesn't happen at all. That you that you get that in the single family world, which is why a lot of people will play in that one to four unit single family space because technically commercial for multifamily starts at five units and above. Exactly. And I've had this fight with so many people, I can't even begin to to tell you that people will talk about, you'll see realtors doing lives on social media where they'll talk about, let's get into multifamily ownership. And they're really talking about one to four unit. Yeah, which is the price of single family. Price of single family because they're single family realtors who are trying to make, you know, investment, kind of going back to the Keller Williams we started the episode off with, trying to give people financial advice. And they're fundamentally mischaracterizing to the people listening to these lives yeah. What commercial real estate and multi-unit ownership really is. Right. Yeah. So I mean, it is it is it is a great investment strategy. Yes. If you can get into a fourplex, that's that's great. You're on your way to eventually maybe getting. Have into you it. ever ran across a fourplex or that, that you can think of? I mean, you've already written a number of five unit properties, right? right? Yeah. Can you imagine renting a uh, getting a five unit property and being levered and call it 97 or even 85 percent and all the cash flow? Yeah. Yeah. What, mar- <laughs> what fucking market would you be in across this country? Exactly. I mean, even in Oklahoma, I could never get there. Right. Exactly. So, I mean, what, what world? So, if for realtors to tell you, oh, 3% down, you can get into it, blah, 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 you'll make cash all day long. No. That, no. that doesn't happen. Right. That, that's a fallacy as far as I'm concerned. Right. Exactly. And um, to give the listeners a little bit more uh, background, these, loan, these loans are typically around 65% loan to value. This is where we generally like to cap it at. So, you know, the sponsorship needs to come in with 35% equity. But in California, where land's really high, you rarely get to 65%. It's usually right. in the mid-high 50s, right? Right. Yeah, that's generally where it's at. But that's where we, like, cap it off at. Mm-hmm. I mean, there have been times we've made exceptions here or there. But, um, yeah, that's where it stays at. And then so... The exceptions that society is talking about are exceptions to guidelines or exceptions to policy. Mm-hmm. So those are typically made as long as you can mitigate making the exception. So, so to give you an idea... If a lender tells you that they can't go above 65%, you may be able to ask for an exception if the property's cash flow is exceptionally strong or 
you've got a ton of liquidity or you've got something mm-hmm. to offset that relative or risk. Or if the property's not stabilized and you're about to dump a lot of money into it to stabilize the property, right? right? Yeah. So the, the, some of these rules are not so hard and fast as they may appear, but every lender and bank across the country kind of has their own nuance in the way of doing things when it comes to this stuff, mm-hmm. which is another reason why we've always push people to have relationships with their lender and, and to understand how they work and to have open communications and conversations. Right. It shouldn't be it goes into a black box and you get a no. And what we're trying to do with this particular episode is demystify that black box a little right. bit. Right. And for and for us, this, like I said, this is our bread and butter. So we understand this product and this type of asset very, very well, which is why we may feel a little bit more comfortable than other lenders to make some of these exceptions occasionally, right? If they're truly justified. If they're I mean, justified, exactly. I don't think there's no like friend zone here. No, no, just, there's, exactly. If we can make a deal work, because kind of what we talked about in the beginning, mm-hmm. we, we always try. That, that has always been our position. And yeah. I'll tell you, culturally, I've been in shops where sales and uh, credit, they just hate each other. There's, yeah. just, there's just natural healthy stigma to between people in the sales team and people in the back office team. Right. But the reality that we all have to accept is that we're all major important components to the end result of getting right. to the getting these deals done and the real the real client is not the salesperson it's the consumer it's the consumer and then this is that's funny you mentioned that because currently right now i'm working with some of some of the um, the guys on our analyst team and get, i'm trying to get them to understand and realize that that there is a client at the end of this that it has is having an experience mm-hmm. and we need to make sure that we're setting the table properly you know so and the difficult thing too is for that client experience, it, 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 we we tend to forget how many people touch them. Yeah. It's that client talking to a broker, talking to a broker's processor who's going through the bank's processor, through the underwriter at the bank, right. through an, you know, possibly an originator at the bank in addition to that. So there, there's a number of people that are pinging. And for all you know, by the time you as an underwriter get this deal, mm-hmm. it could have been in, work, in the works for three, four weeks. Exactly. And they've now been told that it's been an underwriting and it's been ready for me now for a couple of days. And so it's like, I, what I like to do is go through this loan amount first. This is why I like to touch this because let's nail down this loan amount and then I'll make sure I get all the other necessary documents I need to make sure this thing reaches the finish line. Okay, so let, let's walk through what some of these other documents are. So now you finish the net operating income analysis, you know the property qualifies for a loan of, let's just say a million dollars, it gets to a 120 debt service coverage ratio right. at a 58% and, LTV. And just to clarify, for people that want to know how you calculate that debt service coverage ratio, mm, right? Look at you being <laughs> analytical. Go yeah, all analytical, right? You take the net cash flow of the property and you divide that by the debt service. And what we do is we take our stress debt service, uh, annual debt service, and you divide that and that gives you your... Debt service coverage ratio. So a bit of clarity is that it's not uncommon for a bank to want to stress things. You'll find stress testing in banks is rampant everywhere. Everything is stress test. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that we'll add in is an extra layer of stressing, which is usually a, a rate above your actual rate that you get for your loan. So let's just say you're getting at today's rates uh, four and a quarter percent. Right. We might stress it to four and a half percent with all the same analytics there, right. which will change your cash flow a little bit because that increases your payment, yeah. bringing down your debt service coverage yeah, ratio. We're looking at it on a worst case scenario, right? Just almost like hedging ourselves a little bit. This might be one of those episodes you have to binge listen to, listen to it six, seven, maybe 8,000 times. <laughs> Tell your friends about it. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But so now that you have the cash flow and you mm-hmm. figured out your debt service coverage ratio, which is your primary driver, which reverses you into this loan amount and gives you yeah. your LTV, mm-hmm. you know the deal is viable. 
Yes. But there's still more to look at here. There's still a lot more to look at right Where now. Where do you go next? Right. What, what I go through next is I look at the our entity structure, right? I look at our entity structure and I look at our, you know, how financially strong our sponsorship is, right? So let, let's, let's go through the entity structure too because I think that – so in larger um, secondary market or bigger companies, your agencies, your GSEs, uh, and even conduit lending, they typically look at some of the stuff as, quote, legal, not mm-hmm. necessarily underwriting. Yeah. All an underwriter would look at would be just the net operating income analysis and maybe some other things about the property, maybe the appraisal and stuff like that. But, yeah. So Making sure there's no health and safety items on the property. Exactly. Right? We've gone above and beyond to train our underwriters to think essentially like attorneys as it relates to real estate. And they do the analytics into these things. But the, the proverbial, proverbial upside is, number one, a more efficient process because one person knows the entire transaction. Right. And two, you, the listener, get to hear about some of the fun stuff that most underwriters in some of these larger institutions don't have a skill set in. Yeah. So as you were saying, you look to the entity structure. What's the most common entity structure you see? So what I, well, th- and this is the fascinating, this is what actually pulled me in to this industry once, once I got introduced to it that was really cool is, is seeing how rich people invest their money and how they do it. That's what pulled me in too. Yeah. So that's how it's so cool, business. right? And so what you see is like, this is this is where the light bulbs came on on each of these properties being their own individual business because they're all wrapped under generally speaking a lot of the savvy investors will have mm-hmm. each property listed under one LLC right. right a single an LLC and if let's say you know they're financially strong enough or as we like to call them ballers um also hard <laughs> also hard it'll be a sole member LLC even right so they'll own the LLC 100% themselves and so instead of having it under their name individually they have it wrapped up under an LLC where they themselves are the manager and the 100% member and for the, for everybody's knowledge you can look up title to any property mm-hmm. uh title is a is it's public record yeah it's not uncommon to see people come up with creative names, but yeah. I, would, I would say the most common way of naming an LLC for a property is usually like, let's say the property is at 1234 Knott Street. Yeah. It could be 1234 Knott Street LLC. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and and Or, you know, Knott Street LLC or something to that effect that references a specific yeah. property. It's just easier for them to organize. It's easier for them to organize their own, their their, their structure that way. Yeah. So you, you can look this stuff up and find it. Now, syndicators who are, you know, are looking for people to invest in their potential property, like the Grant Cardones of the world, Although the, the legitimate ones I would hope <laughs> reference, but right. they you would buy into the LLC and you would have an ownership in that LLC, which subsequently owns the property. Right. And the reason why the LLCs are the most common form is LLCs have the best passive uh, income tax benefits. Yeah. So yeah, exactly. And for each of those, they, they require subscription agreements that they're all signing off on everything. And but then there's one manager. Um, for that um, entity, and they're generally the one that's also financially strong enough to support the transaction, which is how they get around packaging, you know, their hundred list of investors because the managers themselves are financially strong enough to support it in case anything were to go wrong, and we just package the manager. And what I'll do then is to make sure I'll go through the entity, make sure we have your filed articles of incorporation, your if you're in the state of California, your LC12 statement of information listing who the manager is, and that has to get renewed every two years in California. Uh, from there, I'll go into the operating agreement and make sure that, A, it's fully executed and I don't have a draft copy because we've had that before. Mm-hmm. And um, just making sure that you know the term of the LLC is extended to the right amount of time, the purpose of the entity is made for what it is. And generally, that's a very vague um, you know, purpose that you know, all activities under the, under the act. Um, that the California... 
codes. Right. I think it's LLC code or no, it's California Corporations Code. Right. Uh, under the Act, anything that's quote legal, right? Right. Yeah. And then I'll make sure that if if it is uh, an entity with a large list of members, make sure that they've all signed and everything is squared underway, and then um, also get like their tax returns, right? Their tax returns, their scheduled real estate own and um, their liquidity statements. So, and this is how an underwriter is gonna tell if your quote sponsorship, your tertiary source repayment is strong enough to support the deal. Right. So just because the property makes sense and we can make a loan on it and it cash flows, and just because there's enough equity in the property mm -hmm. at that particular loan to value and that debt service coverage ratio, doesn't mean that we don't look at those things, even if you're not providing a guarantee. Right. Because we got to know that you're strong enough. And I think one of the biggest misconceptions of people is I'm going to be a syndicator. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go out there and get a bunch of people to invest in my structure. Right. And they make two, I think, key mistakes is one, they think as a manager that they don't have to have sponsorship. So these newer syndicators who don't have any net worth or ownership mm -hmm. or the people who don't have any direct ownership in anything, all they do is have, you know, fractional shares of ownership in real estate. Yeah. That isn't really strong, tangible sponsorship for our purposes. So if you don't have good liquidity and a good net worth that's verifiable and fractional ownership in real estate doesn't help us, and the reason why, right, from a legal perspective, and again, that worst case event scenario of default, if we as a bank wanted to go after you, mm -hmm. in California, it's a it's a single action state, so we could literally just file a document, take a property back. It's a single action, is it? And then, but whenever we do that, we lose the ability to go after you in a judicial foreclosure. Yeah. If we feel like there's some deficiency in the property, we won't get paid back whole if we take it back. We'll go after a judicial foreclosure mm -hmm. and we'll start to sue you personally in addition to your LLC. Right. If we have recourse to you, unless you've committed one of the th three bad boy carve outs and you have a non-recourse guarantee, we wouldn't be able to go after you. Yeah, and I think it's fair. So the the, the documents where they, they could, you know, mislead or have fraud or misrepresentation, right? are, you know, that schedule real estate on which we rely heavily on, mm -hmm. right? Which is something that I do a deep dive analysis on. I, it really gives, it paints a picture out for me who this individual is, right? And your schedule real estate owned should indicate a list of properties mm -hmm. that you own, your percentage ownership in those properties, which hopefully right. you have a couple that are hundred percent. Right. And then it should name like what your mortgage payment is, what your cash flow is on them, if they're income producing properties, mm -hmm. so people can kind of figure out if your cash flow positive. What your estimated value is for those properties. Mm -hmm. And I'll obviously do my own spot checks and see if you're inflating these numbers or not. And then um, more, actually one of the key pieces of information that I've been talking to the analysts a lot about is when we're reviewing these, these SREOs, I really want to make sure that you, you guys are checking to see who their lenders are. Mm -hmm. it, it paints a really big picture for me. If I see, I see a bunch of, and there's a lot of loans on there from Chase, you know, First Republic, like all these, all these entities that yeah. I'm like, okay, like this, this individual savvy. They're and, in the system. They met other people's criteria. They met other people's criteria. Not to say that I'm just going to rely on it. Oh, he's good. But, but they're also not hard money lenders. Exactly. Not, and that, there's a lot of that going on right now. Right. There's a lot of that going on. And if I see a, a, a schedule of real estate owned where there's nothing but private, private money, hard money lending on there, I'd be like, Okay, this is worrisome. Red flag number one. I'm not writing them off, but now I got to do a deeper dive. Mm -hmm. I got to ask for maturity dates. How do you plan on paying these people off? And that's a whole nother can of worms. So to give people a couple different, um, I guess, scenarios in which this comes up uh, is that if you want to close fast and a bank can't get you financing fast, you can go to hard money lender. They can do an analysis and they might be able to close on a property in, you know, five, seven business days. Yeah. That might be one excuse to do it. But more often than not, people say, well, it's an equity play. Mm-hmm. I bought it because it's undervalued. I knew that you wouldn't be able to underwrite to it as a lender because the cash flow is not there. And we're going to do X, Y, and Z. We're going to add a dog park and we're going to add new appliances <laughs> and we're going to do all this like yeah. shit and we're going to be able to raise rents. Yeah. 
And assuming that the appraisal comes back and you don't have a rent issue where because we use lower of the actual rent in place right. or market rents, you might be able to attain a higher rent, but it might not be market. So you're playing a little bit of a game there. You have hard money lenders out there. You're paying a, a really high interest rate. Typically, I've seen them as high as 10 or 11%, but I think right now 7 8% is probably a little more common. And now your clock is ticking to pay that off. Mm-hmm. But we know you had to use them for a reason. So there's enough there to cause a bank to want to look into it. But here's the real problem for a bank. is that, Let's say you did all those things. Let's say it does cash flow. And let's say the appraisal comes back. And in a best case scenario, everything works out. And you're able to achieve the rents you talked about. Right. We now have top of market rents. Yes. In a newly renovated property. Mm-hmm. As a bank, there's only downside risk for us. Exactly. There's only one way to go. And that's down. Right. You know, one of those, one of those tenants leaves. And now you're not cash flowing in the... The, the bank that gave you the loan really stretched to get you max proceeds, well, you're not going to be able to service that debt. And if rents go down, right now you're underwater and now it's, now it's an issue for the bank. Mm-hmm. Which is why we like to underwrite to that 120 debt service coverage ratio. Mm. Mm. With a stressed interest rate. With a stressed interest rate, exactly. And now there's somebody out there who's sophisticated and multifamily going like, God damn, these guys are conservative as shit. Yeah, yeah. What the fuck are they doing? <laughs> exactly. yeah, we are conservative. Yeah, we are conservative. <laughs> but we do nothing different largely than some of the largest lenders in the country like Chase does. Right, as an exactly. We all effectively do. Nothing we're telling you is proprietary or secretive. Mm-hmm. Matter of fact, all of your lenders uh, should be somewhat open kimono with this stuff and full disclosure. I wish more people spoke about it this way. But they typically don't. And I think... Because there's not a lot of this conversation, I think the the single family people who want to get into this space feel like there's a stigma or this, you know, kind of cloak and dagger relationship. This mm-hmm. is really all that it is. Right. So after I after I tackle that loan amount and then I go through my other needs list, right? I like to send out my What's a needs list? My a needs list is of all the items that after I my initial comb through the file, I see that there's these are some of the outstanding some of the items that are still outstanding that I, I need to make or you have questions about something that you found right. and you need answers or you need right. documents to support it right of that nature. right for instance let's just say you know somebody brought, bought a property less than a year ago and now they came back to get a cash out refi and um you know their loan to cost based on the cost of what they purchased a year ago is over a hundred percent you know i have questions like yeah you, you know what i mean like wh- how much money did you put into the property in order for this value to go up as high as it has and because again we as a bank are not going to cash you out a hundred percent of your investment and leave you no money i love it when i see people on social media and on the internet talking about how i've got zero dollars into this man i saw it today yeah a guy say you know i've got zero dollars into this property because i'm a big believer in the burr method he was pointing the multifamily property yeah you know buy rehab rent re- refinance right. repeat yeah you know? and i'm yep. thinking to myself there's no lender in the world that's going right. to cash you out 100% unless it's been some significant amount of time. Right. Some significant amount of time and you have, uh, I mean, you need to have some sweat equity in that property. Skin right? in the game, brother. Yeah. I need to make sure you have skin in the game. So the things like that where I'll, I like to go through and I like to send it out on one email to the client because there is a client on the other side of this. So you've gone through everything at this point. You've gone through the property. You've gone through the appraisal. You've gone through the cash flow. I've gone through everything and everything that I need in order to make a decision. And if there's anything else still remaining, typically um, what I can do is after the loan gets approved, I can condition to receive the remaining items prior to the close of escrow or if it's if it's really necessary prior to uh, loan documents. But none of these things are typically catastrophic to the actual loan. Like if you're getting no. to this point, the loan is fundable so exactly. long as these elements come in. Right, the remaining conditions. So I think this back and forth is also one of the things that throws off most people in consumer lending. Mm-hmm. You get an approval back from a lender in the single family world, like you're approved, you're, you're going. Yeah. 
you get an approval back from a, a, a bank or lender for the multifamily space, it's typically a conditional approval. Yes. And on that conditional approval is almost always some things like insurance, title. Yeah, I got to make sure that that, that insurance premium that we said um, you were going to get, I need to make sure that you got it. When your final policy comes in, things of that nature. So yeah. in in the when you think of the transactional nature of a single family relationship, you get to the end, you get an approval, you close your deal. It happens almost you know overnight. Mm-hmm. In the multifamily space, you get an approval. There's still some time right. between that and actually funding your deal. For us, generally about a week and a half, two weeks. Okay, right. and but, that's but that's also because we don't want to stress the system. I mean, there's a lot of deals going on. So. Yeah, and and we we fund out you know billions of dollars in, in quarters now. Right, so, exactly. I mean, we're, we're putting out a lot of money. Um, so, in your experience, in all these things that you've done, you still like multifamily real estate? Well, it's my favorite. By far. By far. Without a question. Right. You know, um, ever since back, and I've mentioned it on the podcast before, that, it, you know, I first got, my eyes got open to it when you said back in 2008, less than 1% of all multifamily loans defaulted. I think mean, it was like 0.3% or something. 0.3%, some, something crazy. I was like, wow, that's crazy. And it was just like, light bulb kind of went on. Like, well, if people start to lose their homes, where they have to go? And if they can't afford their rents, what do they have to do? Just lower the rents? It's really difficult to get over leveraged in multifamily. Mm -hmm. And even if you were to get over leveraged, people, these are, these are a business for people. Right. And I think that's the disconnect. When Mm -hmm. you have a home, you can always downgrade your home or change your living situation. When you own a business, business owners very rarely just throw in the towel and say, I'm out. Right. Like I'm done. Mm -hmm. So it's very, it's very uncommon in the multifamily world to have somebody just pass the keys off and say, I'm out. But explaining this this game of Monopoly to my friends and family that I've learned like over the years, has it, it blows their mind that this is possible with how, you know, the appreciation that goes up over time, you pulled the cash out and with the money you pulled out, that the lender made sure that the rents in place are still able to cover that debt. So you're not having to pay out anymore, mm-hmm. right? And you take that money, now go invest in another property and now make more money. And it just blows people away. I mean, yeah. So the real world implication that he's talking about it is you're always cash flow positive. Yes, you're always making money off this. And I think we always tend to think about that eight unit property, the six unit property that mom and pop owns that they're relying on for their income every single month. Well, if you refinance down and you don't pull any cash out, your your cash flow is going to go up, right? Right, because you're reamortizing the debt. Mm-hmm. This actually would be a good point to talk about too. So unlike the traditional single family world where you get a thirty year note or a fifteen year note or something like that. Uh, typically speaking, in the multifamily world, you get a three, five, seven, or 10 year. And they're also pure adjustable programs. I don't know anybody who ever really wants that, but uh, a three, five, seven, or 10 year program. And at historic interest rate lows, you typically get a seven or 10 year program. You go out as long as you can. Mm-hmm. But multifamily owners, commercial real estate owners, they're refinancing their property every couple of years. They're pulling right. that equity out because they want that cash in their pocket so they can go buy more property. This is a game of leverage for them. And, th- and they're willing to pay a little bit of a premium on a property just so that you know, they can receive the tax benefits of that, you know, whether it's if it's a 1031, if they're selling it, or if they're pulling cash out, just to, just to have another property cash flow. So I want to hit you with some questions that that have, I've come to some conclusions on over the years, but I've never asked you about. Okay. So I think you and I have the same kind of mindset as, as a, how interesting it is to see how these businesses and people operate. Yeah. But I've always looked at this and thought the barrier to entry for commercial real estate is really high. It, it's gotten higher mm-hmm. over the years. I mean, based on a lot, a, a lot of the individuals that we're talking about have made. You know, they got into this game. You know, in the seventies, eighties, nineties. You know, so this is like wealth being passed down, 
right? Um, so that that's actually question number one. Okay. So before you go on, I want I want to really drive home because you're going there, and I, I don't want you to cut the question off. Okay. So a lot of people on the internet, mm-hmm. a lot of people that you talk to, claim they own a lot of real estate, and then you see them and they're like 30 years old. Yeah. 35 years old. Yeah. That's- In your experience, yeah. How often is that a self-made? No, no, no. Those are trust fund babies. If that if that's true, they're trust fund babies, right? Mm-hmm. Which okay, you know, you gotta look, you gotta deal some nice cards. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. So good good for you. And hopefully you can grow that portfolio into something greater and better. But um no, if if they do own all those properties, you're owning a fraction of a percent, right? But you're not owning them whole right hundred percent all on your own. So I think this is one of the most manipulated things, I think, as it relates to in individual real estate investors and what they tell people. Yeah. And I've said, let, let's take somebody who's 35 years old. Yeah. You've lived through the last 14 years. Yes. Okay. You were 21, let's say, when you started, when you got out of college or maybe 22. Mm-hmm. Lived through the last 14 years of a very, very prosperous economy. Let's say you got out of college 22. Where did that first several hundred thousand dollars come from to buy a multifamily or commercial real estate it's property? It's so hard to get in. So these people who tell you, I own 300 units. I wouldn't believe it. No. <laughs> come on, man. Yeah. It happens all the time, man. Well, I, know, I'm not, I know you've you've told me. I'm not on social media to see. That's the kind of shit that would be so aggravating for me. But you and I are in... We So to put this in perspective, we are the second largest multifamily lender in the state of California. Yeah. That's fact. Fact. We are funding... Billions of dollars a quarter. Right. Fact. We see more volume than most than any mortgage shop that, that's that's small can see. Right. Anybody that's in this space has heard of us and they're coming through us in the state of California, right? Yeah. I mean, I would like to think so. Yeah. I mean, I'm the arrogant one, so of yeah. course you know that I would. <laughs> but that being said, I don't say these things to really be arrogant. I say these things for some perspective. So if we're telling you that these are the types of things that we see, and that's how ludicrous that statement is. Right. Yet that is the most common statement on social media. There is a material disconnect. There. Yeah. And it's it's not just this industry. You know, this is an issue that, you know, just because it's said online does not mean that it's true. Right. Um, it's, the Internet doesn't lie. Yeah. The, <laughs> the Internet doesn't lie, I guess. But um, you got to... Y- you got to use common sense when it comes to these things. If somebody who's 30, 35 years old telling you they own that many properties, well, they, they haven't been, they haven't been alive long enough. Well, and they haven't, they haven't had the time in the game. I mean, I will say the last four or five years it relates to real estate has seen some values increase significantly, but they were still very expensive to start with. So, right. um, and I use myself as an example. I would love to own larger multifamily properties. Yes. And I make good money. Yeah. Yeah. I still can't afford to buy it. Right, I know. And I've always, I've actually asked you about that before. I'm like, I know you're buying a, a lot of properties out in Oklahoma. Um, and I'm like, well, I asked you, like, well, how come you haven't gotten into, you know this space better than better than anybody, yeah. right? And you're like, motherfucker, it's, it's expensive. It's hard, it's hard to get into. It's hard to get into, but I will say that I don't think, so I have a very different perspective on this. Like, I don't believe in selling properties. So I don't want to 1031 exchange up. Mm. which I could very easily do right now. I can 1031 exchange into a larger building and just right. run that. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to do that. I don't yeah. want to sell anything that I own. That's pretty cool, yeah. And and I have business reasons, which if we, if we really wanted to break this down in a, in a future podcast, we can, which I have planned in a worst case event scenario if I were to die tomorrow, Yeah. that everything is paid for on upon my death. Wow. And it's it's structured that way to give my wife and my son like ultimate lifetime cash flow. Yeah. 
So I don't want to jeopardize any of that for kind of future plans for for more growth right now because I know there's some other business things that are coming up for me in my life in the next call it five or seven years. Yeah, that'll be more lucrative. But right. Um, so that was that was question number one. You know, do you see these things? Yeah. I guess question number two. And again, we haven't spoken about this. This is just me asking you. Right. From your perspective, the real estate investors that you've seen multifamily real estate. Yes. And you look at their their whole financial situation. Yeah. Do they tend to have a lot of money in stock or be very diverse or where 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 is their their usually their core worth? Is it almost always in real estate? It's almost always in real estate. I mean, yes, uh, a, a lot of the, the big players of course have brokerage accounts that have has have a lot of money in them. Um I, you and I know know the you'll know the names of these individuals. Yeah. Um but for the bulk of them it's it's in real estate. I I've said mentioned it on the podcast before. I don't care if you're a contractor, if you're a dentist, you're an attorney. When you're coming to the bank and I see your net worth and it's primarily made out of real estate and for our purposes, multifamily real estate, like you're a real estate investor. Yeah. You know, you're not an attorney, you're not a dentist. That's what you are. You're doing this thing, this nine to five every day to make money so that you can do this. Great segue. So then would you say that the most common trend that you see is that people have some type of income source, which was big enough to get them into real estate and that's kind of what leveraged their position? Yeah, I mean, what 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 I'm actually interested in, I know this space because of what I do for a living, mm-hmm. right? I was given an opportunity at the bank, it interested me, I went in full force and I'm learning about it and I loved it. It was very interesting, very intriguing for me. So that's how I got into it. But I, w- I would be curious to know how some of these people got into it outside that had no other real estate investing experience and this is the the path that they chose. Yeah, we we so rarely get that story. Yeah, like why you chose this path that to right. build wealth. I think some some people are just in you know some of the ethnic. So we deal with a lot of different ethnicities, a lot of different profile borrowers. I would say that a lot of a lot of the ethnicities that we deal with, and mm-hmm. a lot of them, I think inherent inherently have like this real estate land ownership is everything. Yeah. Um, and I, I've I've always found, and I don't know if you've noticed this, aside from the ones that are legacy wealth that, mm-hmm. that are handed off from their parents. A lot of the people who built it from whatever they built it with their their their, their liquidity event or they built a company or something like and that they sold it they, out, yeah right. they sold it out whatever they, whatever they did they built it they they tend to have like the first generation wealth background mm-hmm. I don't know what it is but they they tend to be the people who typically built it are usually the first generation here yeah it's the guy who got to this country got successful or the kid who who grew up and built a company got successful. They're the ones who go into these big real estate portfolios and it's the right. next generation that usually manages them yeah. but doesn't scale them anywhere near the same degree. Yeah, you would hope that you hope that they would, but yeah, I don't know. That that's always been very intriguing to me and that'd be nice. <laughs> they would be really nice to be handed that. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we don't always get the answer as well. But it is actually a question I do ask from time to time. So if I see somebody that comes in and applies for a loan and they don't have a lot of, you know, multifamily investment real estate on their schedule of real estate on I'm not shy in asking how how did you establish your wealth, you know. If mm-hmm. I'm not, I, I I'd like to know. First of all, I have to know from uh you know know your customer uh protocol. Um, but so under banking regulation, one of the requirements for risk and compliance is that you have to kind of you have to know your customer. So you have mm-hmm. to know source of wealth and source of funds. Right. And the reason why is there's BSA, AML, there's Bank Secrecy Act, anti-money laundering. So right. all sorts of compliance that puts a responsibility in the bank to make sure we're not funding terrorism or any kind of illegal or illicit activity. Right. Same way they do in the single family world. So like, I, I just want to make sure that that money's clean. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I guess 
to wrap all this up, mm -hmm. this is not as complicated as it sounds, I think, to us, but we've been doing it for a long time. Yes. Do you think it would be difficult for a single family person to, to learn this business and to really get into the commercial side of the business? Not at all, no. I mean, if, if you're already in that space and you've, you've taken the time to learn, you know, the terminology, the verbiage, all that, um, it, it'd be, it would behoove you, right, to take a look into this space. And if it's a possibility for you, in my opinion, a much safer investment for you down the road. And to, to springboard off that and to wrap this show up, I think not only should everybody strive to be an independent broker, in my mind anyway, mm -hmm. but I mean, if you want to be with a brokerage, fine. But you should absolutely look to diversify what you do. If you're a single family um, home salesperson, right. or a broker, you should strive to be in the commercial side too mm -hmm. because there are seasonal offputs. Yeah. Um, you know, right now when everything's going low and there's people going out of town, it's fine. But the commissions are the same, but much, percentage-wise are the same, but much, much higher dollar amounts in the commercial space. Yeah. One of those deals, in addition to your single family stuff, could really springboard your life. Not not only give you the same money and liquidity that you could use to put down into a property of your own, right? But it, it could definitely build a career that's got a lot more diversity and staying power. And understanding this side of the business gives you an ability to actually be a wealth advisor on some level, right? That Keller Williams wants to train their single family resident people to be, right? And if if they could take the time to break all this down and help people understand debt service coverage ratios and cap rates, but and they won't. And you and won't. I both know. No, that. no, no, they won't. They'll just. I mean, I don't, who knows what they'll do? But um, yeah, that's what that's what it takes. That's what you should be looking to get out of it. All right. So before we let you go, one last thing. Said and I, um, I typically we have a laptop with notes on it on the screen. <laughs> We've had Yo MTV raps on this entire time. This is some of the weirdest fucking videos I've ever seen in my entire yeah, dis life. Disclaimer: like, we we didn't know we had cable in here. No, right? there was. This we is, have nine hundred channels. This is just like free. Like on the, on the what do we have? A black box in here? What's I don't going know on? what's going on. We yeah. turn the TV on. Also, we got nine hundred yeah, channels. Uh, it was hard. There was a couple of times I had to hold back from laughing because Cardi B was on here. We had the Migos on here. Like, what's going on? Hair in the, in I was the like, Ferrari. I, I, what I don't. The I, don't fuck? Yeah, I don't understand, man. Yeah, I don't understand it either. That being said, uh, so if there's any even awkward pausing on Saeed's part because he was laughing his ass <laughs> off looking at some of these MTV rap videos, which are not not uh, the way yeah. they were when I was a kid. These would be interesting, like, right. funny. Now they're just <laughs> yeah, weird. Yeah. yeah. Ludicrous. All right. Well, happy Friday. I, I made the mistake a number of times on the previous episode to say, see you guys next week when it's a Tuesday. Mm -hmm. and oh, yeah, then we yeah. have a Friday episode People coming out. out so it. I'm not doing that right now. Yeah. I'm saying we'll talk to you guys on the next episode. Yeah. Talk to you guys on the next Don't forget to leave that five-star review. Honest. Yeah. Five-star review. Honest five-star review. Because any other review that you leave would not be honest. Right. Thank you. In advance. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation on the Higher Standard Podcast. Make sure to hit subscribe or follow on whatever platform you were listening to this on. If you like this episode, please write a review and share it with us. You're getting the show up and running right now, so every message, every review, and every note counts. This show exists to showcase what's possible when leaders decide to uphold a higher standard for their businesses, their investments, their families, and most importantly, themselves. If you want to see more of my content, I post daily on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube. So be sure to follow me on your favorite social media platform. And with that, it is a wrap. And as always, I look forward to hanging with you all on the next episode.